you're listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. We bring international affairs expertise from Stanford's campus straight to you. After World War II, democracy spread as never before. But today, dictatorships are starting to creep in. Robert Kagan argues that it was the military might of the United States that helped democracy spread, and that re-establishing the United States as a defender of democracy would help to keep them at bay. Kagan is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and spoke to FSI students in 2017. It's great to be at this great institute, which is uh, really, you know, doing great things and is well known around the world increasingly, so I, I congratulate all of you. Um, I'm going to try out something on you today, so it's, uh, it's where my, what I've been thinking about lately, and I, then you can tear it apart after we're done. Um, I want to talk about, I want to take, they talk about a 30,000-foot look at things. This is like a 30,000-mile look at things. I really want to pull back the lens uh, and think about where we are right now. And I basically want to talk about the, what is commonly referred to as the liberal world order, I'm sure, like, like the Holy Roman Empire, you can argue about every single one of those words, but let's just use it as a, as a shorthand, and what threats uh, there are, what its longevity is. I'm aware that the liberal world order is not beloved everywhere. I understand it's not beloved on college campuses, for instance, where I gather it's regarded as a kind of uh, racist hegemony, but in any case, I've heard that liberal world order is not the most popular thing, and I know it's not popular in parts of western Wisconsin and the White House. Um, and I don't want to make uh, extreme claims for the liberal world order, uh, by which I mean essentially the order that has been, uh, was sort of created after World War II and uh, has fundamentally built around American power in the years since then. But I will, I do want to say that there are some extraordinary qualities to this order. Uh, or any single one of which would make it unique in human history, uh, and the three of them together uh, make it beyond, whatever is beyond unique. Uh, nothing is actually beyond unique, but let's pretend. Because, and it's the things that I think that we lose sight of because we don't think about history. We don't think about the condition of humankind throughout history. So, uh, in this period, uh, as I think we all know, uh, the world has enjoyed the greatest period of prosperity uh, of any other time in human existence as far as, I'm sure, I'm confident that as far as we know. Uh, there has been since 1950 and up until the beginning of the 21st century global GDP growth of something like 4% annually um, compared to the rest of history. That's extraordinary. You probably won't be surprised to know that for most, for almost entirety of human history, global GDP growth was zero. Uh, maybe it was one and a half percent in the 19th century, and it's been four percent since. And one of the consequences of that is that some four billion people have moved out of poverty uh, during this period, which is quite an extraordinary accomplishment. It's also been a period of an explosion of democracies. Uh, democracy in, throughout history has been the rarest form of government. I would almost say that where democracy has appeared uh, occasionally in history, it's, it's almost an accident. Um, at, the begin, at the end of the 19th century, there may have been five or six democracies in the world. 
and today, of course, there are over 100. Now, there's also more countries in the world, I understand that, but this particular period is one that is absolutely, completely different from every other period uh, in history with regard to the number of people who live uh, in, in, in countries where there are democratic governments. And finally, and I think perhaps in some respects undergirding uh, those other two, we've also been in a prolonged period of great power peace. Now obviously we've not been living a period that's free from war. There have been wars, there have been uh, terrible <coughs> civil wars, uh, genocides, and etc. cetera. Uh, but the kind of uh, sort of seismic great power war of the kind that we saw twice uh, in the 20th century, once at the beginning of the 19th century, and rich, which really characterized international relations throughout recorded history. At, there are almost no periods when the great powers, whether they're city-states or empires or nations, were not fighting each other. And so all three of these things are extraordinary uh, taken together. Uh, again, the average lot of human beings uh, for as long as we can possibly know, and probably longer than that, uh, has been one of poverty, living under tyranny, and being beset by war. Uh, this period, for all its many problems, and we could spend an entire evening listing them, nevertheless has uh, been an entirely different type uh, of human experience. And it's probably not surprising, given who we are, that uh, we, at least at the beginning of the end of the Cold War, in the first years after the end of the Cold War, but I would say even today to a very large extent, have regarded this period as, a, as, as sort of proof of human progress, uh, that we have been heading in this direction uh, throughout the centuries, that uh, what is basically our, we're, we're all sort of children of the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment idea of progress is very much, is deeply ingrained in our way of looking at things. Um, there have been all kinds of theories beginning, uh, you know, in the, in the 17th and 18th centuries by people by Condorcet and Turgot and Montesquieu and Kant uh, and Hegel and Marx, uh, which share a number of characteristics. And one is that the expansion of knowledge leads not only to the expansion of scientific and technological development, but also the improvement of human behavior that knowledge breeds better human behavior, uh, that commerce makes people better, that it sort of dampens down the sort of warlike or nasty qualities of human nature, uh, that there is a general, that history moves in one direction, uh, that there is uh, a, a sort of stages of development that nations go through. We call it modernization theory, but they had other ways of looking at it. And this period that we've been living in uh, which someone near to your hearts around here referred to as the end of history, uh, represents basically the new plateau of human existence. And that's where, uh, that's where, we, that's where we have arrived. It's a new normal. Uh, it is the progress that we have been seeing, the development of Western civilization over the centuries. I have to say that I don't accept this interpretation, and it seems to me that it has always been 
based on a real cherry-picking of history uh, because it has to ignore uh, all the horrible backsliding, all the wars, all the devastation, all the periods uh, uh, when there were no democracies, uh, and somehow move from uh, you know, carefully selected movements that we call Western civilization um, so that we can find a way of creating a pattern that leads to this uh, moment of, uh, of uh, you know, the, the fulfillment of our attitudes uh, toward progress. Uh, Hannah Arendt wrote about this phenomenon in 1950 in her book, uh, you know, The Origins of Totalitarianism, and this is, you know, coming at a time when we just had a world war and we were already uh, deep into the Cold War. And she wrote, we can no longer afford to take that which was good in the past and simply call it our heritage and to discard the bad and simply think of it as a heavy load which by itself time will bury in oblivion. Um, well, apparently we can do that. Uh, only 75 years ago, we had uh, Hitler rampaging across Europe, uh, carrying out unspeakable uh, acts of atrocity. We had Stalin in uh, control of Russia, uh, also carrying out unspeakable acts, killing tens of millions uh, in one way or another, including man-made famine. Uh, and now we are supposed to imagine that somehow 75 years later, we are a totally different creature that we have completely changed and that that experience which occurred in the lifetime of our parents and grandparents has no relevance to our present existence. Uh, that it was somehow an aberration. And of course Hegel has a way of explaining all this. He refers to the cunning of reason by which he means yes you're going to have all these horrible things and people behaving in horrible ways but fortunately the universe and world history is reasonable and it really all has the same purpose. I think that's a very uh, fancy way of getting around this problem. But the notion that we could possibly be under the illusion that humanity has changed in any fundamental way from the time when it was uh, living through uh, those horrors seems to me to be uh, a very serious error. Uh, these days you can read books by Steven Pinker uh, talking about, uh, there's a book called The Better Are Better Angels or something like that, and he makes the case, looking at statistics, uh, that, human, that violence committed by human beings against one another has declined uh, markedly uh, over recent decades. He begins this, his baseline of the beginning of this improvement is 1945, and yet somehow the geopolitical events uh, where this began is not part of his analysis. His analysis is that human beings are getting better and behaving better. Uh, there's another book by a couple of Yale law professors whose names I can't remember uh, who postulate that uh, the famous Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928, which has long been a subject of deserved ridicule for its absolute failure to prevent World War II, uh, in their argument uh, has nevertheless, well after World War II, had an enormous impact on the behavior of nations 
by the proof of which is the lack of great power conflict ever since. Um, and somehow that uh, does not have anything to do with geopolitics. All this is a long way of my getting around to saying that I don't believe in this theory of progress and I don't believe that the incredible period that we've been living through uh, is the product of progress. It is not the triumph of the liberal idea. Uh, it is the triumph of a liberal power. And that the period that we've been living in uh, is the product of a particular set of international circumstances uh, that arose uh, after World War II, a reconfiguration of power uh, on the international stage, that it was not the triumph of an idea, but the result of this geopolitical set of circumstances and the fact that the strongest power emerging out of World War II happened itself to be a liberal, democratic, capitalist power. And so how shocking is it that the world has increasingly, or at least until recently, increasingly moved in a liberal, democratic, capitalist direction? And that what we have seen, as pro what we have seen in this period is not the consequence of pro progress, it is the arrangement of the international system that has made progress possible. And it did so essentially by suspending the normal patterns of history and interrupting the normal patterns of history that had existed up to that time, uh, and by doing so in a very particular way, which was that the United States, by virtue almost exclusively of geography and wealth, was able to do something that no other power in the history of the world was able to do. It almost has nothing to do with virtue. It has nothing to do with the wonderfulness of the American people. It had to do with capacity. Again, a capacity that no other power in history ever had. Namely, that this enormously powerful country lived in a region of the world where there were no other great powers that could threaten it with respect to Canada and Mexico. Uh, meanwhile, all the other great powers of the world live in crowded neighborhoods next to other great powers. And what that meant was the United States had the capacity, if it chose, and it spent many years not choosing, but then finally did choose, to deploy the bulk of its forces overseas to bring stability to regions that had known only conflict for a century or more. And basically what the United States did after World War II was in Europe, where ever since the unification of Germany, uh, Europe had been caught in a cycle of conflict because of the German problem of being too big for European countries themselves to contain, had led to not one, not two, but three wars in a fairly short period of time, which essentially pitted Germany against France, but were about Germany, the implanting and of, uh, the, the emplacement of American forces in the heart of Europe essentially put a cork in that conflict, uh, made it possible for Germany to turn away from a career of militarism toward a career of economic and political success, made it possible for Europe uh, to end this cycle of conflict 
and move to the period of economic prosperity that it's enjoyed ever since. And the United States was able to do the same thing in Asia, where ever since the rise of Japanese power after the Meiji Restoration in the late 1860s, Japan entered on a, a, a pattern of uh, regional conquest, mostly at the expense of China, initiating wars in 1894 and 95, in 1904 and 1905 against Russia, uh, etc., moving on up to World War II in a seemingly endless cycle. And the United States, after World War II, put a cork in that conflict and drove Japan away from a career of military expansion to a career of economic expansion. Uh, now, we came to take that development as the new normal, as the new reality, but this, I think it's important to remember, is, is the aberration from where history was going. It's not the great power wars of the 20th century, it's not Hitler and Stalin and Imperial Japan and Mussolini and all of that, that was the aberration. That was where history was going. The aberration was in stopping that history and suspending it. I should actually say the, the, the thing is that it did was to suspend it, not stop it. And in that space that was created uh, after World War II, the possibility of progress that we've enjoyed ever since uh, the, 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 the circumstances allowed for that progress to take place. And we've seen in that space the enormous, evolu the incredible evolution of what we regard, what we liberals regard as progress uh, in terms of the expansion, the gradual expansion of rights, the pairing back of government dominance, uh, the growth of individual freedoms, et cetera, et cetera. Those things, however, depended on this, if I can use the term these days, safe space within which uh, they could occur. Now, let me just say, because this is where things get complicated, this was not a, always a pretty sight, this creation of this liberal space. And, uh, you know, it would have been, it's much nicer to imagine that it was just the triumph of the liberal idea. Because if it's just the triumph of the liberal idea, there are no losers, there are no conquered, there was no imposition on anyone. It's just simply everyone just getting it, finally. It's the triumph of the idea, not of power. But of course, that's not the only thing that happened. Yes. The liberal idea was embraced by many around the world because, yes, the liberal idea does appeal uh, to uh, basic human sentiments, but we also have to recognize that the liberal order was also imposed, and imposed by force, and imposed by military force. And the first imposition was the conquest of Germany and the conquest of Japan, and the forcible conversion of those countries from what they had been to what they are today. There was no reason to assume that Germany was naturally going to evolve into the democracy that it is today based on its own history, nor was there any reason to believe that Japan would have evolved into the country it is today based on its natural 
or its normal behavior up until then. So this, this order was partly an imposition, and it was an imposition conducted by a nation that is made up of people. And people are flawed, and people are selfish, and people make mistakes. And so in the course of creating this order, which by the way was not really even particularly the intention of many Americans, certainly after the initial period after World War II, America made many mistakes, carried out invasions that perhaps it shouldn't have done, uh, caused misery to people around the world, and also at the very least certainly imposed its will in ways that others uh, could reasonably find uh, objectionable. And the problem of using power, which is what the American people did throughout this period, is that power, the exercise of power, is the same whether it's for good ends or bad ends. It, ha it can have the same consequences for those against whom it's used. Uh, which means, as you know, people like Reinhold Niebuhr told us a long time ago, that there is no exercise of power that doesn't include the, the committing of immoral acts. That's just an inherent aspect of exercising power. And that's always been troubling to us as well it should be, but it's also impossible to separate this exercise of power with the consequences of that exercise, which included the creation of this um, order. Now, again, the, the critique of this order is easy to make, and the critique of American policy is even easier to make. But I think the question that we always need to ask, and this is where I think we have lost sight of the remarkable period we've been living in, is compared to what? I think sometimes when people are critical of the liberal world order as it exists, they imagine some fantastic order where there is global equality, where everyone is treated equally and fairly, and there is something called justice in the international system, whether it's created by liberal institutions or economic redistribution or what have you. Uh, I think, unfortunately, there is no such thing as justice in the international system. Justice is not possible in the international system because of its basically inherently anarchic uh, quality. By the way, I suppose we could ask whether justice is ever actually possible in any fundamental way, but I feel quite confident that it is not possible in the international system. The system is only what the most powerful nations make it. And so the question is not our way or the obviously better way, in my view. The question is our way or someone else's way. That some power or group of powers is going to create an order that suits their interests and their needs and fits their predilections, just as we have, just as the United States has. So unless you are very confident that that other order, which will also require power to impose, is necessarily going to be better, I would be careful about uh, doing away with the one that we've been living in. And there are various answers that people have come up with it. Realists think that somehow if you could create an international balance of power, I think Henry Kissinger these days is suggesting that if only the various competing cultures could move into their own corners and work things out, 
uh, we could have some semblance of an order that was stable and just, but I think that's as much of an illusion as any other because balances of power don't remain stable, uh, nations don't stop competing, uh, and uh, that's, I think, another form of escapism. My, my basic point is the choice is not between the terrible that we know and the good that we could hope for. The choice is between the terrible and the really terrible. And I think we've lost sight of that, living as we have in this bubble of the liberal order that we've created. I think we have forgotten, or maybe in the case of some of us never knew, how bad things really can be. And we've done that in a way by writing off what happened 75, 80, 85 years ago as things that could never possibly happen again. So we look out at the world today, a world, by the way, that we in the liberal world order still dominate, and look at a Putin and say, well, he's not so bad. He's bad, but he's not Stalin, and Xi Jinping is not Hitler, and so we can all relax. Except Hitler didn't look quite like Hitler either in 1934. I'm not saying that, by the way, that's where Xi Jinping is going. What I'm saying is we don't, we don't have enough imagination to understand how bad things can get. But we can find out. What we see today all around us uh, are basically signs of the persistence of history and the persistence of human nature. We see more and more Russia behaving like traditional Russia, China seeking to re-establish itself in a traditional posture that it had held for you know, hundreds if not thousands of years in the East Asian region. We see signs uh, in countries that we regard as liberal and friendly uh, of some at least echoes of the past, whether it's a resurgence of nationalism in Japan, whether it is the rise of a right-wing party in Germany, and by the way, I consider Germany the most liberal country in the world right now. Uh, when I see some of these things are, are fairly innocent and, or fairly minor in the grand scheme of things, but when I see the United Kingdom uh, voting for, Bre you know, deciding to pull out of Europe, I must say the historian in me says, well, what's new? The, the British don't want to be closely tied to the continent. I'm reminded of what I think might be a joke, but maybe it was true of some, there was a headline in a British, in an English newspaper saying, you know, channel shrouded in fog, continent isolated. Um, <laughs> there are many signs of things reverting to the mean. And I think one of the things that's hard for us to accept, especially because of our enlightenment inheritance, is that you know, nations and their behavior are very much a product of their geography and their history. That it's very hard for nations fundamentally to change their basic sort of uh, character in the international system. And again, the continuities of Russian foreign policy as well as domestic policy and the continuities of Chinese foreign policy if China has power 
and the continuities of Japan and the continuities of the United States. The patterns that existed until the United States changed all the patterns, those are deep, deeply etched patterns and nations, in my view, will fall back into them if the United States were to stop playing this role of suspending history. And I think that's also true about human nature. You know, we have this idea, again, this enlightenment idea of human nature, that it is all about the yearning for autonomy and recognition uh, and, you know, individual freedom. And those things are there, obviously. But we also have this assumption we privilege those against other versus other, you know, attributes of human nature. But those other attributes exist, you know, a kind of uh, human fears, insecurities, a longing for, for belonging to something larger than themselves, the kind of tribalism that human beings, uh, off, uh, you know, uh, revert to, especially in times of insecurity. Human beings have all kinds of spiritual needs uh, and desires which liberalism does not answer. Uh, and all these elements of human nature are always in competition and balance. We know it in our personal lives that there is the good and the bad at war with each other, what we call the good and the bad, if it's true in a more general sense too. And I think what we created in this liberal order uh, since World War II in the space that it occupied was it basically put the thumb on the scale of certain elements of human nature, suppressing uh, some of the ones that we'd, we'd like to see less of and encouraging some of the ones uh, that we would like to see more of, but that doesn't mean that any of them have gone away. And I think we see some of them coming back. And as I say, liberalism does not answer all human needs. In fact, uh, in some respects, it sort of violently doesn't answer all human needs. And I think we, we know, and we've seen it many times in history, and I think we're seeing it today, that liberalism creates its own antibodies. That liberalism creates a reaction among humans against liberalism. You know, in, in the early 20th century, liberalism seemed to be spreading. A lot of people thought democracy was going to take over uh, because of the rise of the United States and other countries. Um, there was a reaction against liberalism in Germany. Germans uh, elevated this idea of Kultur, which was really about the importance of the state and the collective versus the individual. And they sort of looked down on the liberal governments, you know, the nation of shopkeepers as they referred uh, to England, and they said there was a higher calling for humans than the protection of individual rights. And that critique of liberalism has existed as, l as long as liberalism, and we see it today as well. And that's certainly uh, in the case of uh, people who have strong, devout religious views, liberalism, and certainly enlightenment liberalism, is hostile in a certain sense to those views. And so we see a backlash uh, in parts of the world uh, against liberalism. Uh, you know, Hegel said world history is nothing but the progress of the consciousness of freedom. No, it's, there's more to world history than that. Uh, and we see that uh, today. So there is a constant struggle. And our assumption that the better angels win out or that the better idea wins because it's a better idea, again, from our perspective, I think is both naive and belied by history. 
The better idea wins when it has power behind it and it loses when it doesn't have power behind it. So this takes me to the question that's near and dear to all of our hearts, especially to some of my friends and colleagues here, which is the question of democracy. You know, I don't know why we ever thought that in this constant struggle of all the competing impulses in human nature, that those impulses that lead to democracy must necessarily win out. Nothing in history supports that idea. They have won out in this period, at least in large parts of the world, but I believe that that is because of the geopolitical configuration of power. If you look at uh, history, you can see that it depends very much on who has power, whether democracy succeeds or not. In the case of the long struggle between Athens and Sparta, Athens went around creating and supporting Democrats in all the little city-states around, and Sparta went around supporting uh, oligarchies. Um, when Athens was gone, democracy was essentially gone. If you look at 1848, there, was, there were liberal revolutions all across Europe uh, in what, was, what would later become Germany and France and elsewhere. Uh, but the balance of power was such that Britain either felt it could not or chose not to do anything in particular in support of those liberal revolutions, and they were crushed by power. They were crushed by Russia and Austria wielding power in Germany and elsewhere. Just, by the way, as the settlement of the Napoleonic Wars was about crushing liberal revolution. That was the main purpose of the peace settlement and what followed in the years to come. Contrast that with 1989 when there were other liberal revolutions and the dominant power in the world was the United States along with the democratic allies and that was a time when you saw democracy and liberalism triumph. It's not a coincidence uh, that you had these two very ge different geopolitical situations and if you trace the, dem the rise and fall of democracy throughout the 20th century, it is not a one direction situation. There were maybe five or six democracies in 1900. At the end of World War I, there may have been two dozen, but then democracy fell apart again. And you had the rise of fascism. And democracy as an idea actually lost power in the 20s and 30s. And so, uh, at the, you know, in 1939, you were back down to a little over half a dozen democracies again. And then after World War II, you had this, uh, this growth of democracy, but even that wasn't a steady thing. There were reverse waves um, for reasons that I also think have something to do uh, with ge geopolitics and American uh, policy. All of which is to say that our basic assumption that the democracy, the sort of, the, de the democratic world we see around us is here to stay, that we don't have to, that that is sort of just the new normal, I have no confidence that that's really true. And I'm not just talking about democratic recession on some, in some peripheral areas of the world. I'm talking about democracy uh, right in the heart. Uh, we have this tendency, and you know, I would say conservatives in particular have this tendency these days to say, well, we should only be supporting democracy in those parts of the world where you know, the basic preconditions are really there. We shouldn't be trying to spread it. And what they mean usually is, in, uh, in countries outside Western civilization, what they call Western civilization. So Donald Trump, uh, 
went to Poland uh, and celebrated the values of Western civilization. Are we confident that Poland is going to be a democracy 10 years from now? Two years. Two, thank you, Larry Diamond. <laughs> you know, it's worth recalling that fascism was born in the heart of the West and in Italy. Um, that was a joke for people who just didn't get it. Just, 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 just a little joke here in the middle of this whole thing. So, um, but seriously, uh, you know, I would say that we have been directly and indirectly supporting democracy in many countries around the world where you might not have had democracy otherwise and where you would not necessarily have democracy if the fundamental geopolitical realities were to radically shift. Uh, I would like to believe that Germany crossed some threshold from its past to its present and could never possibly revert. I would put a lot of whatever money I have, which is not a lot, on, on, on hoping that that's true. But if you just, again, just pull the lens back in history and say, which of the Euro forget about the rest of the Middle East or Latin America or any of these other, any other part of the world. Let's just talk about what we call the West. How many of those countries were democracies at the end of the 19th century? We're talking about a very young group of democracies. And I think that the role that uh, the United States played for its own interests after World War II in implanting democracy in Germany and strengthening democracy in the other parts of Western Europe and doing the same in Japan really created a critical sort of ballast, really created the circumstances in which it would be possible for all kinds of reasons to democracy to spread and not only in those regions but to other regions. But let's take that away. Take that role and that kind of behavior away how many countries would you be confident in saying could not possibly revert to non-democratic government? I must say I, I worry about it. And I think, again, it's a lack of imagination on our part that makes us believe that if America would just pull back a little bit and stop trying to implant democracies in crazy places like Iraq or Afghanistan, which we're not actually very much trying to do, but let's pretend that that's a really big goal of ours, or in other places that seem rather inhospitable to our Western civilization, if we stop doing that, those would be the only places. If the United States stopped playing this role in the world, those would be the only places where democracy uh, might take uh, a direct, might go in the wrong direction. The way, the analogy that I use, and which is sort of the title of the essay that will never see the light of day, but a book which I hope will see the light of day, <laughs> Is the, the, is, is the jungle grows back. And, and what I mean by that is, if we think, let's think in terms of the democ democratic world. I would, if you think of the democratic world as a garden, and if any of those of you who are gardeners, which doesn't include me, but I gather this is true, uh, you're in a constant battle against the jungle, right? The jungle is constantly returning, the weeds and the vines if you let nature take its course, you don't have a garden at the end. So you are in a never-ending struggle against the vines and against the weeds to keep your jungle in place. Your garden is the artificial creation. The jungle is what nature gives you. 
I think the democratic world looks a lot more like that than we may want to imagine. That that garden is not self-sustaining any more than a real garden is, and the jungle does want to grow back. And that we don't realize, again, how artificial this situation is, and therefore what a struggle it is to maintain it. And I would say that's true of the liberal world order in general. This is not the product of history. In a way, it is a defiance of history. It is not the natural product of human nature. In some respects, it is a defiance of ma major elements of human nature. And in order to preserve it, it's not even enough to just stand back and admire it. You actually have to be constantly pressing and pushing out the jungle that wants to grow back. And there are things happening in the world today that have nothing to do with us which are inevitable. The return of geopolitics was inevitable. The rise of China, of Chinese power was inevitable. The return of a Russia that is unhappy with the post-Cold War settlement was inevitable. I think the populism that we see around the world today was to some extent inevitable. It's no one's fault. It's human nature reasserting itself. The question is, are we going to fight back against any of this? Are we going to push back as we did from 1945 until the end of the Cold War, in, engaging in all that ugly activity? During that period, Americans exerted power and influence in a constant uh, struggle against what they regarded as this existential threat of communism and backed by the Soviet Union. They exaggerated the threat. Jimmy Carter was not wrong when he talked about an inordinate fear of communism. Our, our fear was inordinate. And we made mistakes as a result of that, and that's not hard to document the errors that we made. However, the consequence of this paranoia, some of which was justified, but some of which was probably a little much, the consequence of that paranoia was our basic conviction that there was no part of the world that we didn't have to care about in some way, and that we would have to exert influence along the entire spectrum of power, from the military to the economic to the political to the cultural, etc., in order to deal with this crisis. And again, setting aside whatever mistakes were made, the consequence of that enormous exertion of power, I would say historically unprecedented exertion of power, was the creation of this remarkable period in human history. And so the question I think that we face right now, and it's not a question that I think has a happy answer, I'm afraid, is if it took that kind of exertion of global involvement and influence to create this order, can we keep it in place with a significantly reduced, I'm not even talking about isolationism, I'm not talking about retraction, I'm talking about going back to what a lot of people would call normal in our foreign policy. What if normal is not enough? What if normal doesn't get you to this world order? Because we certainly didn't behave normally in all those decades after the Cold War. I mean, after World War II and during the Cold War. I mean, my basic belief is that although everyone thinks that over the past 25 years, the United States has just been doing too much, we're too involved, we're too overextended, we're too meddling, we're too interventionist. My belief is we haven't been doing enough. 
that a lot of the, th some of the things that are wrong with the world are a product of our mistakes, just as they were in Vietnam, but some of the things that are wrong with the world are the product of us not doing anything about it. Some of the developments in Europe today that we've seen, the slide in Hungary away from democracy, the, 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 the movement in Poland away from democracy, I believe that is in part a consequence of our neglect. Uh, we could, with the EU, and since these countries were NATO members, have exerted a great deal more pressure on those countries and trying to prevent them from moving that direction uh, than we did. But we just didn't think it was that important because things just don't seem that important to us now. So we, d and we didn't do in, let's take all the disasters that we've engaged in. Let's talk about Libya. Uh, in the 1990s, if we had taken the action, which I think was a legitimate and justified action in preventing Gaddafi from slaughtering tens of thousands of people and therefore removed uh, Gaddafi from power, in the 1990s we would have followed that up with an international peacekeeping force to move into Libya to make sure that there wasn't chaos in the wake of that fall. That's what we did in the Balkans. And are the Balkans uh, perfect, shining examples of wonderful liberalness now? No. But they are much better than they were and much better than they would have been if we hadn't done anything because we took the responsibility after stopping a potential genocide or uh, aggression, we took the responsibility of not leaving and of staying and making sure that things didn't completely fall apart again. Uh, could we have kept 5,000 troops in Iraq after 2010? Of course we could have. That was a complete own goal on our part, in my view. And, and would everything have been hunky-dory in Iraq and there would never have been any more problems? Of course not. And would we have to keep 5,000 troops in Iraq for 15 or 20 or 25 years? Yes, quite possibly. Just as we have kept troops in Korea and Japan and Europe and in other parts of the world for decade after decade. But yes, for all kinds of reasons, we haven't wanted to do that. And, and I understand it because the burden that Americans have carried since the end of World War II has been an incredible burden. It's a burden like no other people have ever carried. Now, I feel like we benefited from it more. It's, we've gained more than it's cost us, but it has cost. And not least, it's cost us morally as well as materially, because we have engaged in all this kind of immoral behavior uh, as a consequence of our policies. So nothing could be more natural than that after the Cold War and this great specter of communism was gone, that Americans would say, can we now stop doing this? And in, in fact, which is what they said after World War I, we don't want to do that anymore. Um, so I understand it. Um, and I guess I would say it is the most natural thing in the world. If you want to say America reverts to the mean, what does that mean uh, when it comes to foreign policy? Well, I would say the, the, the normal behavior of the United States in foreign policy is oscillation. We oscillate between periods of high involvement, then we're disillusioned or we don't want to pay the expense, and then we pull out again. Uh, we did this all through the Cold War. You know, after World War II, everybody wanted to bring the boys home and go back to normal, but then we went rushing back out again. Uh, got into the Korean War. After the Korean War, there was another period of retrenchment. Then we got into Vietnam, and then there was another period of retrenchment. And so you can see that oscillation. Now, during the Cold War, the, oscillation, the oscillations were short and shallow. Uh, 
the oscillation after World War I was deep and prolonged. And we may be in one of those oscillations now, although I must say it looks more like the oscillation of the interwar period after World War I than like one of the short Cold War uh, uh, re, uh, periods of retrenchment. It's interesting to contrast our reaction to Iraq to our reaction to Vietnam. Vietnam was a much more costly war in terms of lives lost than Iraq. There were 10 times as many deaths in Vietnam than there were in Iraq. Uh, I'm, the, it, depending on how you want to count the numbers, I'm sure Vietnam was more expensive than Iraq. Um, and perhaps most importantly, it was much more divisive in our society than Iraq. It tore our society apart. But five years after the end of the Vietnam War, the American people elected Ronald Reagan on a platform of military rearmament and fighting the Cold War even more aggressively. He was the most aggressive proponent of, uh, cold, of cold War policies since Harry Truman. Uh, and then in, in, when it was morning in America in 1984. But we are now, you know, ye longer than that after the sort of the, the disillusionment with Iraq, we're at least a decade. And we show no signs of coming out of this trough that we've gotten into in terms of our attitude towards global involvement as a people. Um, I have to believe it's because during the Cold War, communism was enough. And without communism, we see no reason as a people to be engaged in this way. Uh, so I understand it. I understand why we would feel that way, and it's the hardest thing in the world to explain why it's necessary. Because you can never prove that the world order is going to collapse. Franklin Roosevelt, in the last years, in the, la in the latter 1930s, kept telling Americans that it was going to be a really bad thing if Hitler was in, became dominant and controlled all of Europe, and Japan became, controlled all of Asia. And you know what? He never completely persuaded the American people that that was true. And the only thing that persuaded them were the Japanese attacking Pearl Harbor. I mean, that argument was never won. So when people say to me and to Mike and others, why can't, you got to explain this to the American people. I'm not better than FDR. And so I, I worry that it doesn't matter how much you explain to them how bad things can get. It's just, it's one of those distant things and we just hope, hope for the best. And so my concern is not that the oscillation will end. At some point, something will happen or circumstances will conspire to bring Americans back to, okay, we maybe really need to get back involved in all of this. Uh, the last time that happened, we were strong enough to win the war. What worries me is that by the time we wake up this time, it may be too late really to reverse where things have gone at any cost that we could possibly want to expend. That's my concern. Not that we're going to disappear from the planet, we're not an isolationist country, but that when we finally come back around to saying, you know what, this really does matter to us, we may have already lost the ability to change things. So on that happy note, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll uh, look forward to your questions. Thank you. So, Bob, I think rather than me standing up here awkwardly, I'll just let you uh, take the questions. My one request is that you tell our guest who you are. 
uh, so he has a, a little bit of an idea who he's interacting with. Can I ask the first two, because I'm standing here? I don't think I can stop you. Isaac, can I ask the first one? Okay. <laughs> he can stop me. Um, so just two questions. You hinted at him, and I think I know the answer listing, but I want to make sure I do. Um, first, you were just talking about will, not way, right? Mm -hmm. We, the people, we don't want to do this. Um, do we still have the capacity to do it if we had the will? And talk a little bit about that in terms of correlation of power and the way you see that. The second one was a uh, question. Uh, you, you hinted at it, but I want to press you on it, about the threshold. Um, and you said, you said you didn't know, but I, I want to see how much you, you think you know um, about uh, liberal imposition, right? And you mentioned Germany. I actually thought, because I've read Dangerous Nation, that you were going to talk about the South. Uh, well, and, and liberal imposition. That's after. a touchy subject these days. Uh, well, okay, all right. But, but that, to me, is, is a closer, that's an easier case that, well, actually, I should be careful. I don't know. I'll, I'll let you answer it. Where it seems like, irrespective of where you thought we were at the end of the Civil War, there was liberal imposition, there was power, as you rightly you describe in the book, and it, it doesn't feel like that could go back, but maybe I, I'll let, leave that to you. But, I was, but you hinted at about Germany, and so what do you think, even if you can't predict, and is there a way we could ever predict when imposition actually leads to a different trajectory, not just a reversion back to some mean? Yep. And then Isaac gets the next question because I saw his que hand for okay, second. Okay, great. After mine. <laughs> well, on the first question, I, I actually, you know, I've been pushing back against this notion of American decline and that we don't have the capacity to sustain this. I think the remarkable thing about this structure that was created after World War II is that it's very durable um, and it will require uh, you know this is sort of I guess I could have ended on this note I could have done on an optimistic note but I chose not to I guess or I ran out of time it's very hard to it, it, it's uh, this structure is 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 deep in the sense that it is going to be true for for quite some time I believe that the role that America's played in providing security to nations that are living next to potential hegemons uh, is, a very is, is a very durable situation. What I mean by that is, you know, we spent a lot of time worrying in the Cold War that if, you know, if we weren't tough enough, then countries on the periphery of the Soviet Union would have to cut their deal with the Soviet Union. I suppose you could worry that eventually Japan would have to cut its deal with China or Korea, South Korea would have to cut its deal with China if we were weak. But boy, we'd have to go a long way down the road for that to happen. I mean, right now, we have what ought to be a hostile government in South Korea, comparatively speaking, in terms of the attitude towards Americans. And we have a president in the United States who's done everything possible to alienate the South Koreans in the middle of this crisis. And yet, it's very clear that South Koreans feel they have nowhere to go. They're not going to go rushing into the arms of the Chinese. That's not an answer for them. I think Japan also feels they have nowhere to go, and Estonia feels they have nowhere to go, and the Gulf states, and Israel, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, therefore, it's a, one of those things where it'll take a lot of effort <laughs> on our part to undermine that basic reality. And, you know, I've been fighting back for years on this notion that, you know, because China is going to surpass the United States in overall GDP, uh, whatever it is, in 2030 or next, or next year or yet, or already happened yesterday, whatever it is, um, 
I'm not persuaded that that means that all of a sudden the world is completely different. It's still going to be a fairly poor country uh, in terms of per capita GDP. But even beyond that, you know, there, the Britain did not lose its capacity to sustain its world order because its GDP was 7% of global GDP. It lost its capacity because it was just inherently impossible once you had German unification and the rise of Japan for a country like Britain to sustain that order faced with the twin challenges. The United States is in a different position, so I think it's more sustainable. Um, so I won't answer your second question. I mean, I, I don't really understand your second question. Are you asking whether it could you mean in the, well, the South, that gets into the questions about the United States, right? Yeah, which I kind of wanted you to talk about. Okay. Well, I'm happy to talk about the United States. Sure. I, I think that, you know, aside from the Civil War, which was once you had, uh, once the decision was made to go to war and to wipe out the institution of slavery, um, I think that the, this inherent element of what makes America, America, turns out to be uh, predominant, and by which I mean the principles of the Declaration of Independence. And, you know, Lincoln in that debate, in that discussion at that time, put it very well, and I think it's something we need to remember, especially in the present moment. Uh, he spoke of, uh, I guess this is a biblical reference, which I don't know, but he spoke of uh, the apple of gold and the frame of silver. And what he was referring to was the, the frame of silver was the Constitution, and the apple of gold was the Declaration of Independence. And what he said was, the frame was made for the apple, the apple wasn't made for the frame. Which is a, I thought, particularly lovely poetic way of saying that the essence of America is not even the Constitution or the institutions or what the people are like at any given moment. The essence is this, is this idea of the Declaration. It is the only thing that unites Americans. And if you look at the broad expanse of American history, we are not a wonderful people all the time, and we have got all kinds of deep, dark uh, elements to us. Uh, you know, I would say democracy and liberalism in America, you could say, have sometimes dis survived despite Americans. Um, but if you look at the course of our history, this set of principles has always emerged triumphant. Uh, We've had setbacks in treatment of peoples, but if you look at over the whole stream of history, we've had a continual expansion of rights and protection of rights, uh, as we've seen certainly in the most recent period. That is a trajectory that has never permanently stopped. And it hasn't been because the institutions protected us, and I don't think our institutions would necessarily protect us today. But it does seem to be something that, that keeps driving us forward, and that's the reason I would say. Now, if, if I've had this conversation with my German friends and they get very angry at me and they say, well, what makes you think you're the only ones? And we also have those, that deep commitment to those Enlightenment principles. And I think that's true. And I think you could say the French do too. Um, but, so, did you ask me about, Ger so Germany, yeah, right. So, so, the threshold so here's the situation in Germany that I, that I worry about. And it's not because I think the Germans are going to become Nazis again. I don't think that's possible. Anybody who's been to Germany knows that that's like inconceivable. But here's the scenario I can imagine, which is if Europe in general renationalizes and countries start basically becoming more and more about themselves and the EU ceases to be the big issue, 
and it's really about every country for himself, you are immediately back to what they used to call the German question, which is to say that Germany is too big and too rich for the rest of Europe to deal with. And so I can imagine a situation where Poland and Italy and Greece and France begin to take measures to try to hem in German power or to take economic decisions that are favorable to them but not favorable to Germany. And, and why wouldn't the normal response in Germany be to say, hey, wait a second, we have to take care of ourselves too. It's not evil, it's not Nazis, it's not any of that. It's normal human behavior. And then you're back to the German question. And so those are the kinds yeah. of things uh, that I worry about. So Isaac. Um, uh, yeah, I'm Isaac. I'm Isaac. I'm a sophomore in Professor McFalls. And so my question is, over the past 25 years, uh, so your argument is that um, the liberal order has won out because of the United States' um, relative you know, power over peer competitors. And, but you also mentioned how over the past 25 years, the United States has done less and less in the international arena, while, and it also seems that um, our competitors like China and Russia are getting stronger and stronger. So why, despite this, have we seen Russia and China um, become more liberal over the course of the past 25 years, especially China, maybe less so Russia? Is that kind of a, a fault in your argument? No, it's actually, since I don't think that's actually true for China, it's one of the reasons that I've been led to where I am right now. I mean, uh, since I'm much older than you are, I remember in the 1980s and 90s, we were being told, uh, the Sinologist community said, and the political science community said, that as China's uh, you know, per capita GDP went up and as China made these economic reforms, that they would eventually have to liberalize politically. And we heard a lot of stories about how, well, the fifth generation of Chinese, because they're educated in the West, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, at this point, if you talk to a Sinologist, that is not the direction that China seems to be moving in. Now, you still have people saying, because we can never escape this modernization theory that we're so enamored of, that China can't possibly continue to grow economically without liberalizing politically. But I would say so far they're pulling it off pretty well. And so I would say, if anything, the evidence is much more, it really, the people who have to prove that they're right now are the people who say this evolution is inevitable. I think we are too enamored of our own theories of development. And we're not really prepared to see them not working. And so we'll never give up on this theory. But as I look in Russia and I look at China, the promise that we thought existed in the 1990s, it's now 20 plus years later, and that's not where things have gone. Larry, yeah. Um, so I would like uh, Larry Diamond at UDRL and FSI uh, and Hoover um, uh, present the following proposition. Yep. That the situation is much more alarming uh, if you look at technology both the asymmetric elements that enabled the Russians to really uh, have a very troubling intervention in our democracy, but more so the growing signs um, that China is leaping forward in terms of uh, technological advantage. It's not just the relative size of the economy. 
through foreign investment deals, through requirements for technology transfer, through very significant technology theft of our intellectual property and other means, I'll leave that for later, but also um, by the fact that they're now spending twice the percentage of their <coughs> GDP on research and development that we are. So a lot of basic science and technology is actually now moving to China, and a lot of the Chinese scientists and engineers we have trained are deciding to move back to China. And there's some very smart people looking at this who think that if something isn't done, um, they will have the edge in cutting edge technologies and robotics, artificial intelligence, gene editing, and a number of other things in 10, 15 years, 20 at most, and that they will have, at some point in that time frame, the military superiority over the United States. And that's a world we haven't lived in. I really thought I'd given the darkest conceivable <laughs> picture. And I was counting on you, Larry, to tell me why things were better than I thought. Okay. If the moment comes when China has military superiority, then we are, then it is, it's over. I mean, that's just the truth. I, you know, again, it isn't inherently the case that even technological advance and economic advance necessarily has to lead to a major geopolitical shift. It, you know, it, it, Germany could advance, you know, there were times when Japan and Germany were outstripping us, etc. And Germany's advance over England even was not the determining factor ultimately. It was the impossibility of Britain ever dealing with that. So I still think the, the geopolitical advantages we enjoy would still exist. Because even a technologically advanced China and even a militarily powerful China, and again, I do think that would be a tipping point and then things would just go in a bad direction. But they still, for a long time, they're going to have to face this problem. That if they go to war with the United States or one of their neighbors, they are not only going to go to war with them, they're going to go to war with practically, in a certain sense, every advanced industrial country in the world that they are surrounded by India and Japan and South Korea and Australia and the United States and at that point Europe I think and so that is a that doesn't mean they won't do it the Japanese made a very they also made a calculation which was ultimately disastrous for them people make those calculations uh, but I think they're still gonna be very wary about picking that fight and they would like to win this thing by default rather than by conflict however I, I will return to what you're saying if they are able to develop actual military superiority, including regionally, they don't have to have global military superiority, if they have regional military superiority such that either they are tempted to use that force to drive us out or we preemptively depart, you will then have a different world order. And it won't be this one. So if that's the case, then we're in big trouble. Yeah. Uh, Steve Krasner. talk a little more, Bob, about the liberal anti-violence. Yeah. So it seems to me liberalism, I mean, it basically advocates openness for people, for ideas, for goods. Uh, that looks kind of problematic, I mean, in the United States and elsewhere. So could you talk about these antibodies and whether there are any actual liberal solutions to this problem? By the way, I wanted to give the professors a chance to talk, and then we'll come back to the rest of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
you know, the, part of the, the openness is not, to me the openness is not the big problem. I mean, it does make it possible. You mean the openness in the sense that it, 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 it lets goods in so people lose jobs? Or? All of the above. Okay. It lets ideas in. I mean, we have no, the free flow of ideas is good. Maximum openness of the economy is good. And people will say that you can't have migration, which is uh, where there are no limits, but they have no way of talking about the, what the limits might appropriately be. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I don't know. What, I, I'm going to say I don't know what the answer to that is. I, I think that we could weather this populist revolt as we have in the past. Now, you know, we lost faith. You know, the faith in democracy w was steadily declining in the 1930s and you know after not only the depression but the rise of the fascist powers which seemed who seemed more successful so what turned that around part of it i would say holding the fort was having very good political leadership in the western countries and part of it was a war that we won i mean and you might say that 90% of it was the war that we won and it's not clear that in the absence of that war that democracy would have necessarily been taken as the answer. And, you know, there was tremendous dislocation then, and our freedoms then were allowing all kinds of people to say all kinds of things, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, that's why I say I don't know exactly what the answer is. Um, I, I have a certain amount of faith in the United States, for the reasons that I was saying to Mike, that we have nowhere else to go. I mean, if you actually say it's not about liberal ideals anymore in the United States, where, what is that lead, where is that? Where, what, where do we go after that? We can't have, just regardless of what some people may want, we can't have a white America. That's just not an option. So where, what happens? In fact, I've heard interviews with white nationalists, and they even know that. They, but what they mean, what they want to do is have areas where they can just be white and other people should go away and live in their own areas, you know, so that, but that, you know, that's not going to happen either. In the rest of the world, I don't know necessarily what the answer is, but I do have an instinct that our leadership is going to be a big part of it. Uh, that the ability of the core West to hold together is going to depend to a large extent on our working with them and being there for them. Uh, but I'm, as I say, I don't think we have another option. Yes. If the liberal world order that has enabled this period of such progress has benefited these members of the alliance system, doesn't that in and of itself help to insulate challenges to the liberal world order in the case that the United States begins to withdraw from that and essentially create the conditions for stability, uh, even with a, if we reach a tipping point with China militarily as a regional power? You mean that the that the allies will fill whatever gap we... Uh, the collective, the collective essence of the alliance systems fills the gap that's left by the space of a withdrawing U.S. 
I mean, I think that that is more theoretically possible in Europe than in Asia because, unfortunately, as we know, the relationship among our allies in Asia is not a good relationship. I mean, if, if, you know, if, if left to their own devices, I don't know how close Japan and South Korea would be. Um, they're, not, they're not really in love with each other right now, uh, last I looked. And so our withdrawal in that case is more likely to lead to multi-sided conflict. Um, and that, and you know, India, even though right now we're sort of a, 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 a pole around which India and Japan and Australia and Korea can kind of coalesce uh, and some Southeast Asian nations informally, I don't know that in the absence of the United States anything like that happens. As I say, I'm a little bit more confident that that might be true in Europe, but I can imagine a scenario where Europe becomes Europe. Uh, again, the, the, the problem with that kind of the thinking that you're talking about is it, ex it assumes a lot of what we're seeing now stays the same, only we are not there. And it doesn't, in my view, pay sufficient attention to the degree to which things are the way they are right now because we are there and wouldn't be otherwise. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, you. Sorry, people not call you ma'am. I'm sorry. I'm, sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm Anna. I'm a junior studying computer science. I was curious, to what extent do you think economic growth is responsible for the rise of democracy in the liberal world order? And by extension, a, like at least a perception of lack of economic growth is responsible. Because if it's Economic growth is responsible, it seems like the prescription is not necessarily more aggressive state building or military intervention, but some sort of economic policy solutions. Well, setting aside that I didn't know we knew what those economic policy solutions were, because if we are, we really should be employing them now. But, um, <laughs> but uh, no, I'm not, I'm, I must say, I'm, I'm going to have to count myself these days as skeptical that we understand the relationship between economics and politics. Because what I have a, what I'm not sure anymore is, can we separate what we think we know about that from the fact that we've been living in an age that favors democracy? Um, that's, you know, I, I, I know you can do a kind of, we have this kind of, again, this sort of theory that, you know, feudalism equals aristocracy and capitalism equals democracy and parliamentary government. The places where that's true are so few that I don't know whether we have an actual comprehensive theory, and especially if you're talking about before 1945. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the presence of experts on this subject, and I would, if they want to tell me that I really should have more faith in the, in the correlation, but I just, I don't have that kind of faith. For all we know, economic growth is the product of democracy. You know, it, it could be, that could be more true than the other way around. Yes? You look like you were eagerly wanting to jump into this yeah, discussion. I'm Stoner. I'm a sometimes co-author of my book and also a deputy director. Okay, good. You can straighten me out. Okay, so I'm going to take the optimistic good. Uh, route. Um, it, it seems to me that you didn't disentangle. You, at one point you said when the power is on you know, deciding the idea, then the idea wins. But couldn't it be that the idea is powerful and therefore that's why the power is on the side of democracy. So, um, yeah, what, what would you say about 
that, A. And then the second issue I think that's near and dear to our hearts here um, is governance. And democracies definitely don't have a lock on good governance, although theoretically they, they should, right, By, because of the accountability mechanism. Um, but we've seen that autocracies can actually govern quite competently, but some autocracies govern terribly. Um, there's just some democracies govern terribly. So, so can you say something about governance as opposed to just regime type per se, and maybe that, you know, maybe that's, if, if a populist government performs well, then, you know, then maybe populism is, you know, uh, is, is, is uh, resilient. But if it doesn't, then it couldn't, and there's no reason why it would be. Let me, let me do the first one first because I have thought about the, you know, it, it obviously it occurs to me that the reason that the power is powerful is because it's got the right idea. But I really feel like we come to that conclusion based, it's, I just feel like somehow we come to that conclusion based on an accident of history. Um, <laughs> that the fact that the country that emerged as the most powerful country in the world was not just, was not because America was a democracy. Now, I would say America was powerful because it was a democracy, but it wasn't just because of the idea. I just feel like the circumstances are so specific. I would, I would, you know, I would want more data to support the theory. We only have one example, and I can't tell as you look at the one example, you can't say that anybody else was powerful because they were, democ they were a democracy or because of the idea. You can just say that about us. And so, and by the way, we could have lost World War II. That, that was not inconceivable. Um, uh, there, were, there were mistakes made by us and mistakes made by our enemies which made our life a lot easier and all kinds of things are contingent and I just don't know if there's a theory in the, behind all of that. Uh, so okay. last question, it has to be from a student, it has to be really short. And we're going to end at 6.30 and it's 6.29 and a half. <laughs> Excellent. A freshman gets the last question. Perfect. And uh, I was wondering, uh, to what degree do you think that uh, economic interconnectivity and the presence of nuclear weapons kind of reduced the probability of like a direct conflict between the great powers and kind of moved it to like an all-measure sort of war kind of thing? Thank you. Very good questions. Um, I'm not too impressed with economic interconnectivity only because the historical examples, at least the ones we know, don't suggest that, that makes any difference at all. I mean, no two countries were more economically interconnected than Germany and England and Germany and France. And, you know, that was, that was like really preventing war for a long time until it didn't. Um, and I would say you could obviously look at economic, and I don't doubt, by the way, that China's, that our mutual dependence, China and the United States, is a check on conflict. I do believe that's true, but I don't think it's a reliable check when other issues start coming to the fore, like nationalism and, and geopolitics, et cetera. Those things generally trump interconnectivity. You know, the, there's the Meir, John Mearsheimer says, you know, if the, his solution is if everybody had nuclear weapons, we'd have no more war. I, I really, A, I don't want to go there. Uh, um, but, but, more than that, I actually believe, I'm not persuaded we can't have uh, sub-nuclear conflict between nuclear powers. I actually believe we can have a conventional war with China that does not go nuclear. Now, it's a scary thing and, you know, things happen and get out of control, but let's face it, we plan every single, both countries plan every single day for a conventional war that does not go nuclear. 
And I think we could have gotten ourselves in a conflict with Russia during the Georgia thing when we had ships in the Black Sea and they had ships in the Black Sea and we were going to bump into their ship. Things like that can happen. You know, it's more like the wars that occurred in like the 18th and 17th centuries, which were not total wars. They were not wars of national destruction. They were wars of position. I think it's possible to have a war of position that neither side allows to go nuclear. You've been listening to World Class from the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford University. Follow us on Twitter at FSI Stanford or visit our website at fsi.stanford.edu for more events and expertise from the world of international studies.